Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made in. But it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless words. No one could express how much you deserve. The one we can't pour, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself. It's not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about. Sorry, Lord, for the things I've made But it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus Coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for Our gospel reading today comes from the gospel of Matthew, the 18th chapter. Jesus is speaking. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you'll have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that Every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. Sometimes sermons, you know, 
are mainly intended for the people who are sitting in the congregation. Sometimes they're intended for the people who may be listening on Facebook and worshiping with us there or worshiping with us on the radio. And sometimes they're intended to give you information that you can then take to other people. That may be what we've got here for most of you today. American Christianity, indeed all of American culture, was severely affected by the two world wars of the 20th century. Let's go back in time to before 1910, before the two wars. In America at that time, there were five principal groups of American Christians. The first one was the Episcopal Church, which held a broadly tolerant concept of what Christian belief was. Descended from the Church of England under Queen Elizabeth I, the Episcopal Church was the church of the wealthy and the upper middle class because of the religious wars that had happened in England and the coming together after those, this church had inherited a very broad view of what were acceptable Christian viewpoints on many subjects, as well as a broadly tolerant outlook on acceptable worship styles. The second group was the Roman Catholic Church. With rather strict dogmas and a fixed common worship styles, at that time they were still worshiping in Latin. And at that time, the Catholic Church was seen as the church of the recent immigrants, with Irish and Italian, Polish and Hispanic groups dominating the church. Third was the largest group, the several different Methodist churches, which had separated before the Civil War over issues of the powers of bishops and over slavery, and even later over the question of pew rent, the practice of paying an annual fee for your pew. Some of the Methodist churches were what we would today call holiness denominations, emphasizing individual holiness. And there was an emerging Pentecostal group that emphasized the gifts of the Holy Spirit, primarily speaking in tongues. But the Methodists were united over the ideas that individuals were responsible for studying the Bible both individually and in groups, and in doing their best to follow the commands of the Bible as they understood them, but also in the idea that God loves all people and has given us our salvation as a gift and offers us an individual choice whether we can either accept or reject that gift. At that time, the Methodist movement argued over many things. Some things never change. But they were united in that our salvation does not depend upon any particular belief or action except that Jesus is the Son of God and offers salvation to all those who choose to follow Jesus, and it's necessary to accept this gift. There was a fourth group. It got a lot of press in the day. It were the liberal theologians. They were found in every group, sometimes called modernists. They questioned absolutely every teaching that had been inherited, from the actual existence of Jesus to the inspiration of Scripture to the classic descriptions of what was sin. The fifth and final group, broadly speaking, were the Calvinists expressed by the Presbyterian Church and many Baptist groups. Descended from the Puritans and the Scotch Presbyterians, these groups argued that in every matter of doctrine and dogma and individual behavior, there was a single right way, and all other ways would lead to eternal damnation. 
The Calvinists at this time were very strict. Well, it was in that year of 1910 that the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church identified what became known as the Five Fundamentals. Later that year, they were published and defended in a series of books known as The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth. It was widely circulated. Indeed, millions of copies were printed and they were mailed out to most every pastor in America. And as you might expect, these fundamentals were non-negotiable to most Calvinist leaders. What were the five fundamentals? Three of them were accepted by almost all Christian groups, except for a very few liberal theologians to whom Christianity was only a guide for compassionate living. The first one was the virgin birth of Jesus. The second was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the third was the historical reality of the miracles of Jesus. There was very little debate in Christian circles about these. But a fourth one was debated, as it had been for centuries. It was the, the belief that Christ's death was the atonement for sin. Many theologians accepted this, and many theologians argued that there were other possible reasons for Christ's death including showing his supremacy over death, showing his love for us, allowing a transfer of his righteousness to us, to pay the price to give us all good things, to give us eternal life, and to save us, not merely from hell, but also to bring us close to God. John Piper years later, actually wrote a book, The Passion of Jesus Christ, 50 Reasons Why He Came to Die. Atonement for our sin is just one possible reason for Jesus' death. When we get there, I plan to ask him. The fifth point created great controversy. Even today, between liberal theologians and fundamentalists and everyone else, it was biblical inspiration and the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Now, there's much debate even today over exactly what's meant by these terms and a couple of related terms, and I want to point out that some groups even swap the last two terms, inerrancy and infallibility. And perhaps the biggest debate that's been developed over this fifth fundamental was over that confusion between inerrancy and infallibility. I've seen these two terms defined in many places, and in many of these places, the precise meanings of the two terms are reversed. An equally important debate was launched over inspiration, the idea that God spoke to the writers of the Bible through the Holy Spirit, versus the idea of the theological liberals that ordinary men wrote the Bible and made a lot of mistakes. These are the sort of issues that we can and do discuss at depth in our Bible discussion groups. They go much deeper than I can convey here in a, in a simple sermon. Well, just as these debates over the fundamentals were starting, World War I arrived, and hundreds of thousands of American men were drafted into the army, and they went to boot camp and then overseas. When the war started, about a third of Americans lived on farms. And about three in five, 60%, lived in rural areas. For those younger men who went from farm to the army, it was a tremendous culture change. On the farms, you see, you could hold your own opinions about many things, including what was right and wrong. You could do things in whatever way you felt worked. 
And one farmer rarely messed with another farmer about methods because the right way would be proven in the end. But in the army, famously, there was a right way, a wrong way, and the army way. The army wasn't wrong. For the things which were taught in boot camp were meant to help those young men survive. A man who did things his own way, who trusted in his own wisdom, could get himself and his friends killed. And in the trenches of Europe, many young men saw the benefits of doing things the army way, and they saw the dangers in doing things your own way. And so when these young men returned home at the end of the war, many were damaged from being in those trenches under constant bombardment of mortars and howitzers. And many more had become rigid followers of rules, wanting to know the rules and follow the rules. And this even applied to the Christian rules of salvation. Many people, you know, lost their jobs and property during the Great Depression that followed, especially people who had speculated during the Roaring Twenties when the stock market roared and money flowed easily and alcohol was illegal. And they only... This only reinforced the idea that you needed to follow the rules throughout life, and especially in the church. So the Calvinist ideas found in the fundamentals of the faith gained a great following. Old Testament passages, like our first reading about the Passover, gave detailed, extremely precise instructions to Moses and the Israelites. There's also exceedingly detailed instructions about how to build the tent of meeting and such. And that only forced the idea of following the rules precisely. But World War II came along, and then Korea, and a new generation of men were taught to follow the rules or die. And they taught their children much the same. And so American Christianity began to move away from the idea that God loves us all and gives all of us a chance to go to heaven by believing in and following His Son and American Christians began to turn to finding and following the set of rules for living. In this viewpoint, if you followed the rules, you, you would make it into heaven. And if you didn't follow the rules, you would die and go to hell. And so the church and our overall society began to move toward a rigid sort of perfectionism taught by our parents and grandparents and pastors who lived the army life. And this idea of being perfect, having the perfect child, and the perfect adult spread throughout our society. We didn't talk about it that way, but we really thought that way. Children were taught that the only truly acceptable report cards were those that were all A's. The poor kid who got all A's but one B, you know what the parents were going to say. Next time it's going to be all A's, isn't it? And the poor kid who didn't get good grades, oh. So many children were shamed because they misspoke a word when they were reading aloud in class or they had lower grades. And the only acceptable mu musicians were those who never made a mistake in performance, whether singing or playing an instrument. The only acceptable ways to dress where men had to wear suit and tie without a beard or mustache, never wearing a hat indoors. Women had to wear long dresses at work and out socially. There were no tattoos for anyone and no drinking. None of that was permitted by the church. 
And gradually the only acceptable people at church were those with no sins that could be seen. And a perfect agreement with the stated beliefs of that particular church. Only piano and organ were acceptable instruments in many places. In fact, in some churches, no instruments were permitted at all except the excellent singers' voices. And woe be to the child who moved or spoke in church and was anything other than perfectly behaved. We let actions become our windows into our, the souls of our children and demanded of them a perfection that even their heavenly Father never asked from them. And if they screwed up, they began to get the idea that God would get them. And if God didn't, their parents would. And so much of American Christianity lost its joy and its vitality and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And so many churches began to die as this army way culture took over the church. So many of our young people grew up learning that one lesson from church. If you misbehave, if you're less than perfect, God will get you and your parents will knock you in the behind. And so as they became adults, they either became super strict parents who were absolutely worried sick about their parenting skills, or they walked away from the church, giving it up as impossible and looking to find a new way, a place where they were accepted for who they were rather than how they acted. And the devil was there ready to greet them and encourage them in all sorts of actions. And we in this church made this even worse, for we emphasized the exact nature of some Old Testament passages, like our first reading today. And the teachings of the Ten Commandments were talked about in detail with our children, but we rarely spoke with them about their overall context, as Paul does in Romans 13 where he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We rarely looked beyond the precise nature of some passages to look at the more open nature of some of the other commands we found. You know, we rarely thought about why God would be precise, for example, in the commands for the Passover, and yet be more open and general and honestly vague in commanding that we should love one another. God could have given us an exact description of what it means to love one another. Yet, as the old math books often wrote, this is left as an exercise for the reader. Perhaps some things were left for us to discover. The thousands of ways that we can love one another, or the thousands of ways to go to all the nations making disciples, or teach them all I have commanded, Perhaps there is room for the Holy Spirit in our lives to guide us. Of course, one iffy benefit of growing up under the army way culture of perfectionism, a benefit of growing up in households where our fathers and grandfathers, our mothers and grandmothers insisted on perfection, is that we are acutely aware of when we've messed up. 
But that in itself has often made us neurotic and has made us feel tremendously guilty about every little mistake we make. Few people in America are unaware of their own sins. We all know where we have messed up and the sins that we continue to battle. But our focus upon being perfect, on perfection, meant that a couple of entire generations have grown up nervous and anxious, worried that they're walking a tightrope over hellfire. And over a sixth of the American population today has such severe worries and anxiety and depression that they're taking medications for treatment. And how many television shows have you seen and movies that show the child who has left behind parents who they felt had unreasonably high expectations of their children, expectations that the children felt they could never meet because the children were not perfect. And this is why today the most successful churches in America focus upon helping people understand the love of Jesus and God for all people. And don't focus upon all of the many detailed behaviors and behavior laws found in the Old Testament and in certain places in the New Testament. For while God has given us behavior guidelines, truly, God and Jesus have also said that all mistakes are forgivable, that you're much more than the sum of your behaviors, that God loves you just because you're a human created in the image of God. Now those who sin repeatedly in America They've mostly given up, believing that there's little that they can do to stop sinning. And to a certain extent, that is true and sound Christian belief. For there is little that we can do to stop sinning on our own. And that's why Christ came in the first place. He came to show us what true unselfish love is. He came to show us that we are valuable to God not because of our good behavior, but in spite of our bad behavior. He came to show us that even when we are rejected by people, we are accepted by Jesus. Jesus went so far as to describe a detailed process for those who are in the church who sin against another. Notice that this process only applies to those who have been in the church for a reasonably long amount of time. It does not apply to people who are outside the church. Jesus wanted us to be gentle and not harsh to those who had mistakenly offended a brother or sister in the church. If your brother sins against you or sister, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus is telling us to very gently speak to, one, to someone who's sinning against you, someone who's being a jerk to you. We aren't to embarrass them publicly. Instead, we're to quietly speak to them about their behavior. And then, if needed, take a couple of other Christians and speak again if they won't change, if they're still hurting you. And only then, if they continue to act like a jerk, then you can go public in the church. And if they still act in a nasty manner, then treat them like an outsider 
which doesn't mean that we're going to be mean or nasty back to them, but we look upon them as someone who does not know or understand the love of Jesus and needs to have the gospel shared with them. Love is throughout all of this. In all of this prescription, Jesus is implying that we hold to our Christian principles of loving our neighbor. As Paul wrote, love does no harm to a neighbor. The biggest problem with the army way culture of perfectionism that we brought into our culture is our insistence, like children, upon using black and white rules that apply in all circumstances because, you see, it's so easy to catch people in mistakes, in mistakes, and it's so easy to disagree with other people, but that does not necessarily have much relationship to being right or wrong by God's objective standard. Some things are simply too complicated to reduce to a simple rule. And as mature and humble and wise Christians guided by the Holy Spirit, we're tasked by God to often live in the gray areas of life. Some people have commented that it's our lax standards that are destroying our culture, but I disagree. Although that has a negative effect, it's our insistence of perfection where our wisdom and humbleness should lead us to tolerate disagreement, to accept disagreement, to tolerate honest mistakes, and that's what's destroying our culture. We're like a flock of birds or chickens that peck to death any bird that looks or acts like the slightest bit different. We see terrible enemies when we read about a disagreement over almost anything on Facebook. You see, we've taken the army way culture to the point where we cannot stand a person who, dis who agrees with us on 98 things and disagrees on two things. But you see, Jesus isn't like that. He promised us in Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This is not a prescription for following precise behavior rules lest we fall off our moral tightrope and plunge into a fiery hell. But it is a reminder that Jesus wants us to win, to succeed, to experiment, and find the way to Him. Above all, we're to keep trying, to keep learning, to keep becoming a Christian. It's a process, it's not an event. There are two mistakes which different groups have made over the centuries. On the one hand is the mistake made by the perfectionist crowd who insists that only perfect people can succeed in life or become acceptable to God. Jesus told us that whoever follows Jesus as Lord will receive eternal life. If we could become perfect without God's help, then we wouldn't need to follow Jesus. And we can't become perfect. This is the danger for the crowd that believes we can become so good that God must accept us. It's the sin of personal pride. And it's our personal pride, the idea that we can become good enough without help that's destroyed more people than anything. Besides, even the attempt at perfection on our own is an attempt to put ourselves equal to God. But there's also another mistake that's made, and that's assuming that God has no standards, that anything goes. 
While it's true that God forgives, that Jesus forgives all sins, if we will just ask, it's also true that blindly assuming we can sin as we please is not truly trying to follow Jesus, but it's instead trying to follow our own desires. And this is the danger of those who prescribe a simple, just believe in Jesus and be saved forever as the way to salvation. For once saved, always saved is simply a prescription for spiritual laziness, a way to ignore the very real commands that Jesus gives his followers. To have a relationship with Jesus, we actually need to listen and consider what he tells us and what he commands us. We have to understand and think about what he wants. And so we should accept the very real gift that Jesus gives us, the chance to walk a pathway toward holiness with the assurance that God loves us simply because we're people, that God wants us to try. But like an infant learning to walk and falling down, God doesn't reject us because we aren't perfect. Walk the pathway toward holiness, improve every day, and be secure in God's love. Bring a friend next Sunday. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.